morning, and uh, we're going to do something here a little bit, uh, continue talking about Paul's love language. It's February, it's uh, Valentine's month, it's the month of whatevers and so forth, and all that good hallmarky stuff and so forth, but as we think about that, and as we kind of begin to look at a, a, a subject matter here, there there's some things that Paul say about about this issue uh, and uh, about taking care of one another, of being and so forth, that I just want to spend uh, some time with you looking at because it is literally the way you and I ought to be thinking about one another. This goes beyond just in a husband-wife relationship or parent-to-children relationship. This is literally how you ought to be thinking about each other, okay? Now, we take this, if you're, you got Philippians 2, right? All right, let's divert a little bit here over to Ephesians 5, where we, we looked at this last time as we ended what I want to do, we began last time talking about Philippians 2 and the mind of Christ. And the, the language word that Paul uses in Philippians 2, we're going to go back there in just a second, is that word esteem. That's where we start. Uh, that's why I called last week Paul's love language the introduction. And then during the week I made a change. I went in and added the word esteem. This morning I'm calling this Paul's love language the conclusion and we're going to talk about charity, okay? Now, in between an introduction and a conclusion, there's a body. You think about a letter. You introduce it, you get to the details, and then you come to the conclusion. I'm going to take the intro and the conclusion and put them together, okay? Last week, this week, maybe one more time on charity. And then we're going to go build the body. Because in building out the body, 521, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. As you think about being filled with the Spirit, what that looks like in, in 5.18, okay? Be not drunk with, with wine, we're in his excess. And we looked at this. He's not talking about going out and getting drunk. Common sense tells you don't go get drunk, okay? When he talks about the wine there, he's talking about being a, a partaker of the satanic policy of evil, that vain religious system that's out there. Don't you be a part of that. Rather, what you're to be a part of is you're to be filled with the Spirit. In Colossians, uh, the, the counter, the, the sister passage here, Colossians 3, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So you let the Spirit fill you. How does he fill? He takes the word and he begins to grip your life and go. So now what does that look look like and we spent months last year actually the last two years looking at it he starts by you as an individual you as a member of the church the body of Christ you're responsible for you so what does it look like well there's to be verse 19 speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making a melody where in your heart, your heart, a function of your soul, the mentality center of your soul, with the heart man believes. And that's where you are. That's the real you right there. You think of What are you to have? You're to have a melody. You're to have an inner harmony. You're to come along and be whistling and having a great day, even when the clouds are gray and the, and the, and the, and the news is a doom and gloom thing. Isn't that the case lately? Just, man... I don't even, I dread 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the evening because the news is just full of, of just, uh, you know, those poor policemen, nine of them hurt the other day. I'm just sitting there, what in the world is going on with people? 
Well, we understand that. <laughs> the course of this world and the darkness and so forth. So you got an inner harmony. That's you giving thanks always for all things unto God. Having a heart of thanksgiving, a heart of gratitude. When we get over and we look at the love of Christ constraining us, how does that, you're grateful for what he's done for you. And it's just wonderful to know that you have all your sins forgiven, isn't it? But it's even better to under, more wonderful, if you allow the bad English, more wonderful to understand that you're accepted in him. Most people are looking for what? Acceptance. You get out there, you talk to people, they want to be accepted. I was listening to the guys yesterday after the golf match. They were talking and interviewing, and the, the rookie that's at the top of the leaderboard, he's like, man, it was wonderful. It was amazing to be out here with all these guys and to be accepted. I was like, wow, isn't that amazing? Here's a kid, 24 years old, playing at the top game, you know, playing on the top level of this game, and what is he wanting to be? Accepted. Now, everybody talked about the hole-in-one and all that, of course, but the thing is, is, isn't it wonderful to, to know that you're accepted in him, the one who will never let you down, who will never fail you? You know what will happen one day with that 24-year-old young man? He will no longer be accepted. You know why? Because in that sport, you get old and, you, and then you retire. And then you show up for the, for the alumni games. Okay? And you begin to lose that notoriety. Payne Stewart, when he was alive, great man, a wonderful testimony for the Lord. And he used to say, I'm so happy that my acceptance isn't on the 18th green on Sunday afternoon, that it's in who I am in Christ. Just fantastic. So what are you going to do? You're going to give thanks. A simple thanks, thank you. He doesn't, he doesn't, the Lord doesn't look for grandeur. I'm winning the world for you, Lord. He doesn't look for that. He looks for that heart of thanksgiving. Then in verse 21, submitting yourselves. Notice that, submitting yourselves one to another. Now, we're going to spend some time talking about the one anotherings of Paul. That's the body content. But submitting yourself, be, that heart of a servant. How can I serve you? Now, come over to Philippians 2, and this is where we were last time. And as we think about that, and as we begin to say, hey, this is me interacting with you. Now, in Ephesians 5, he talks into the wives. So if you're a wife, this is how you're to interact. If you're a husband, this is how you're to interact. If you're parents, a lot of married couples don't have children. So, okay, we'll just stop at the end of chapter 5. But if you have children, here's that interaction, that relationship. And then you get down in 6 there and he talks about employee-employer relationship. Okay, here's my attitude about the job and so forth. But where does that all start? It starts in having an inner harmony. It starts and it continues with a thankful heart and a servant's attitude. That's where it starts. It starts with you. Philippians 2, Paul says, verse 5, Let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus. You see how that ends with a colon? You know, colons are wonderful punctuation marks. <laughs> They really are. They're cool. But, so then everybody looks at verse 6, 7, and 8, but I want you to run your eye back up. When he says, let this mind, he's already demonstrated the mind of Christ in verse, well, really verse 2, fulfill you my joy that you be, what? Like-minded, having the same love, 
being of one accord, of one mind. Now watch verse 3. Let nothing be, by the way, the mindset of the Godhead, how the Godhead thinks about each other is verse 2. They have like-minded, they're of the same love, the same motivation, the same thinking, the same purpose. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let this mind be in you which is lowliness of mind. Let us do what? Esteem others better than themselves. Look, not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. When he, by the way, verse 4 is not the right to go be a busybody or nosy and button into people's life. But rather, look, sorry, Joel, but rather looking over and saying, how can I help you? What can I do to help you? There's always one in the crowd. Oh, okay. Greg's not here today, so Joel picks up the mantle, so we're good. That's okay. You're fine, brother. So the thing is, how can I help you? And I'm, I'm esteeming other, thinking high, have a high opinion. I have a high opinion of you. How can I help you? Come over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So this verse comes to mind. We didn't look at this last time, but we are this morning. We're to have this attitude that Paul had. We're to have this mind of Christ. The mind of the Godhead is to be our thinking. It's to be our value system. It's to be how, how, how do I esteem you the way God... Do you know how God esteemed you? He died for you. That's how he loved you. God, but God committed his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners... Christ died. How does he love you? He loved you so much he sent his own dear son to die for you. Thank you, Jesus. No, it's more than that. It's a wow. It it gives me goosebumps just to say it, to think it. And we're sitting over here nitpicking about things. That same mindset. Paul says it, 2 Corinthians 12, 15. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for who? You. The context, the Corinthians. Now the Corinthians are babes. They're carnal. They're, they're infantile. They're just like, and what does Paul say? I'll bend over backwards for you. You know why he says that? Think about 1 Corinthians, the book. 16 chapters. The first six chapters... Paul takes them as little children and bends them over his knee and spanks them. He gets them. Then in chapter 7, he says, Now concerning the things that you wrote unto me, from 7 to 16, he answers questions. And he's continuing to reprove them, spank them, if you will. And yet, what does he say here? He says, You know who you guys are? You're saints of the Most High God. 1 Corinthians 1 1. You're saints. You're fellow members of the body of Christ. So I would gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, what? The less I be loved. The Corinthians had a habit of going after the shiny new trinket in their midst. They loved Apollos. You know why? Because he was eloquent and smooth in the scriptures. He was, boy, he was the cat's meow. They look over at Paul and say, he's contemptible. But man, his letters are weighty, but man, his speech is rudimentary. Not rude, but rudimentary. You know what rudimentary? Elementary. Basic. 
Why? Because some of us are hard-headed and we need the ball to be waist-high across the middle of the plate at about 60 miles an hour instead of 100. Why? So we can catch up to it, (laughs) figure it out, hit it out of the ballpark. When you read verse 15, what you're reading is 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 a thing that we call charity. That's what you're reading here. You're reading Paul and his mindset about the Corinthians, about you and I, about other members of the body of Christ. This is probably one of the few verses in Paul's epistles that literally help define charity and what it really is and what it's really all about. It's to take the mind of Christ, and to think how he would have us to think about everybody. How do I think about you? How do you think about me? How do you think about one another? Again, step out of the role that you're in with your spouse, with your children. We're back up here to how do you think about, would you say to an enemy, spend me? Christ did. Paul does, but would you? It's that, the thi- we're getting down in the, okay? When you think about the issue of charity, that term is so abused in Christianity. It is so misunderstood, it's so misused that literally the new Bibles out there change it from charity to what? Love. But not just any love, it's a guppy, I mean agape love. A guppy love. And then they abuse that. And then they say, well, it's phileo love, and it's this love. Phileo love is your love to God. Brotherly love. Philadelphia, brotherly love. Agape love is God's love and esteem. That's the definitions of those words. But do you know that in the book of John, at the end of John there, when Peter and, and the Lord have a conversation, and he says, Peter, do you love me? He's using the Greek word phileo, Philadelphia love. Then Peter says, yeah, I love you. And he's using Philadelphia. And then the next verse, Peter, do you love me? And now there he's using agape love. So you know what begins to happen? Those words become interchangeable to one another, not distinctive. But Paul uses charity. Come over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. There's a reason why Paul uses the word charity. Because charity carries with it more than just brotherly love and loving one another. Charity backs up and says, hey, here's the mindset of Christ. He's esteeming others better than himself. He's doing this. And here's what you should have for one another. Spend me. I'm not looking to be loved by you. I'm looking for you to help you and to move you forward. Now, we'll look at the process of, the, the, uh, of getting there when we, w- next time. Because there is a process, there is a walk that takes you from understanding the mind of Christ and the esteeming, the highly valuing each other, one another, to this charity. And that process, Paul lays out in his epistles, and he uses that phrase, one another, or another. And he begins to walk you through 
the epistles and deal with and explain to you how you can come from understanding God's attitude towards you, having it then into the details of your life. And we're going to do that walk, okay? That's my goal. Paul uses that one another in term quite a bit, but there's 20 of them that he uses in direct connection to teaching doctrine on how you ought to behave with each other and walk with each other and interact with each other, no matter the role that you're in. So if you're at home, husband and wife, you got it there. If you're over here on the job, you've got it there. But if you're in the local assembly, 1 Timothy 1, here it is. We're in the local assembly. And you know what you're to have? You're to have charity. Okay? Now look at 1 Timothy 1. Just look at verse 5. Now the end of the commandment is what? What's the end? What's the goal? The end. The termination point. What's the goal? What do we have a goal of? Charity. You see that? That's why I did introduction last week, conclusion this week. Here's the end. What's the end of the commandment? Charity. Now it's out of a pure heart and a good conscience and a faith unfeigned. And we'll, we'll look at that here in just a minute. But what's the goal? The goal is charity. Now, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus and Philemon are pastoral epistles. In 1 Timothy, Paul is laying out the structure and the order and the job of the local assembly. The roles of the men in the local assembly the roles of the women in the local assembly, and how and what they're to do. And what is the local assembly to do? Verse 3, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some, that they teach no other doctrine. What's the local assembly to do? Be the pillar and the ground of the truth. Chapter 3, right? We're going to teach no other doctrine. Verse 10, the end of that verse. And if there be anything that is contrary to sound doctrine. What are we standing for? Sound doctrine. Verse 4, neither giving heed to what? Fables. Oh, the stories. It's story time, folks. I'll give you a little story. Nobody's going to win today. Everybody's losers. No. What? It's a story with the moral conclusion to it. We don't do story time. What do we do? Teaching time. The local assembly is not a social club. If you're here for the social stuff, I'm sorry, we're going to disappoint you. Come out on March 8th and you'll get as much social from us as you're going to get. Why? Because the local assembly is for the authoritative communication of sound doctrine. That's why you got structure. How did you know to be here at 9.30 and 11? We have a structure to it, an organization to it. We're not building an organization. We are organized. Okay? Endless genealogies. We don't do the who's who. You know, I go over here because my pastor's this guy's dad and this guy's kid. And all. No, what are we there for? The sound doctrine. Rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. What are we to be about? Godly edification. Then he says, so in the local assembly, we're to be focused on bringing saints to some functional maturity. That's the goal of godly edifying, maturity. What's the end of the commandment? Verse 5, charity. Charity is 1 Corinthians 13, 13, faith, hope, and, lo- and charity. And the greatest of these is what? 
Charity. There's a reason. We're going to look at that as we go along here probably next time. Charity. It's an issue of maturity. That's what it is. You can't have charity over here when you're just getting started. Because you'll be deceived with it. Look, look over at 1 Corinthians. Uh, well, okay, go to Philippians 1 on your way to 1 Corinthians. Philippians 1. You see, charity. And when he talks about charity, he's talking about a mental attitude, a thinking process that comes about because of some knowledge and judgment and discernment and understanding. And it comes in maturity. I almost titled this, Charity is Not Love, but then I'd get in trouble. Okay? Because, by, by the way, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. The themes the local assembly. The underlining theme, byline, is the issue of godliness. God-likeness. Paul never talks about godliness until he gets to Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Then it's about godliness. Romans, it's a grace. Ephesians, there's the goal. Here's the church. Here's what we're doing. Thessalonians, here's the coming. Here's the glory. Timothy, Titus, you're going to, I got to tarry. You're going to be here a while. Here's how you behave so that you come to God-likeness. Well, what Philippians 2 say? Here's how God thinks. Look at Philippians 1. Look at verse 9. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in feelings and in woos and in, and in chocolates and in flowers and in jewelry. No, what, when you come to Scripture, what are we talking about? That your love, that's a mental attitude. That's charity. Here's what charity is going to think about. Here's what charity is going to look like. It's going to abound in knowledge and in judgment and discernment. It's going to approve things that are excellent. Think about that. That means in your life, in the Philippians' life, Paul gets into it with them later in chapter 2 and 3, in their life and the minefield of their life, they had allowed weaker, not excellent things to come in. Good things. Hey, is Bible study good? But is Bible study on the clock at work good? No, you're, to be, you're there to do a job. Be honest with the employer. But Bible study's good, isn't it? Just when does that need to happen? When it's more excellent. Okay? Simple, a little goofy illustration, but hey, folks, you're, you're to come along and you're to look at your life and you're going to say, hey, this, this is good. This is a little better. This is excellent. Let's do the excellent. It's all good. It'll all benefit. And what charity is going to ultimately be about, now come over to 1 Corinthians 8, is the issue of maturity. It's the issue of looking at and learning and growing and coming along in the godly edification process to the point of looking at this thing. You know what? I can decide to be this with them. Have you ever read Romans 12? When he says, you look at your enemies, and if he thirsts, give him something to drink. And if he's hungry, feed him. And then go heap coals of fire on his head. And you're like, huh? How does that work? You know how that works? Maturity. Maturity looks at that. Charity looks at that. And says, you know what? I can do this. Because it's the most excellent thing to do. And I can take all that other and just push it off 
my mind. That's where we're thinking, our thought process. 1 Corinthians 8, look if you will at verse 1. As touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have what? Knowledge. What's the thing about the idols? What do we know about idols? They're dumb. They're, they're just a block of wood, a block of whatever. They're not really, you know, anything, right? We understand that. We have that what? Knowledge. But notice what Paul says. Knowledge puffeth up. But charity does what? What's charity looking for? The more excellent thing. It's one thing to have the knowledge. It's the other to take that knowledge and then go look for the better thing. Is it better to edify someone than to tear them down? Sure. By the way, Paul only uses that word charity a several, just a couple times. Here's one, 1 Corinthians 13 is the other one. Verse 2. And if any man think that he knoweth anything. See that knowledge and know? Because what happens? We begin to think we know something, don't we? And when we begin to think we know something, what begins to happen? <laughs> well, he says, comparing yourselves among yourselves is not what? Wise. <laughs> be, I, the, the verse just went through my brain about be careful. He that think he stands, be careful lest he fall. I butchered it, but anyway. He that, verse 2, and if any man, if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. The issue of charity, knowledge, it, it's wonderful, it's good to have, but charity is more than knowledge. Charity is taking the knowledge that you have and, ha and letting it work in your inner man and let it come out of you and you begin to edify, you go to work. It's love that, it's love that works. It's a thinking process that goes and works for, each, for something, for someone. Come over to chapter 13. I know everybody's, when is he going to get to chapter 13? That's okay, here we are. 1 Corinthians 13. Because this is the great love chapter. Right? That's what the preachers say. Problem is, is Paul says, verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not, what? Charity. Again, you, you look up that word in the definition, and it's, being a benefactor to so many, you know, it's, it's like goodwill, you know. And that's not what it is in Scripture. Charity, verse thir chapter 13, look at the end of chapter 12, 1231. Covet earnestly the best gifts, okay? And yet show I unto you a what? More excellent way. And then he talks about charity as a what? More excellent way. And then he's going to get down and talk about the completion of the Word of God being a what? A more excellent way. You see, there's a, there's a growth process here. There's a thinking process here. What does charity do? Verse 2, and, I, and, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, boy, isn't that a great thing everybody preaches on in Matthew 17, Matthew 21, faith of a mustard seed, you can move the mountain. Paul says, I had it and I did it. Even though I had all of that and have not charity, I am what? Not, if I, I can have all of that ability, 
the sign gifts and all of that, and not be applying it correctly, mature to the more excellent thing. Guess what? It's nothing. There's nothing here. So charity becomes a thing about maybe a little action, a little labor. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. Watch what charity is not, by the way. Charity is not feeding the poor. Now, feeding the poor is a good thing, but that's a result of an edification process that you get to. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. See, there should be some profit in charity. Charity. It, charity, verse 4, suffereth long. You know, it puts up with, isn't it? What's charity do? It's patient. Think about that. And is kind. Think, kindness in our world is gone. There's no kindness anymore in humanity. But think about what it is to be kind, tender, hearted, compassionate, considerate. Look at that. Think about you and your relationships with everybody. Are you kind? Are you considerate of one another? Or are you trying to get? And if I can get it, then I win. No, that's not charity. That's not the mindset of Christ. What is the mindset of Christ? Esteeming others better than themselves. Envieth not. Woo. It's not jealous. It vaunteth not itself. Doesn't brag. I'm, prou- I, I, <laughs> I'm humble and proud of it. That's the brag. Is not puffed up. It's not haughty. Doth not behave itself unseemly. It's not indecent. Seeketh not her own. It's not selfish. It's considerate of others. Is not easily provoked. Not easily offended. Some of you guys are so thin skinned that I say boo and you get offended. Charity doesn't do that. Maturity receiveth not, uh, I'm sorry, uh, thinketh no evil, missed one. Doesn't jump to conclusions. Rejoiceth not in iniquity. Doesn't enjoy hearing about your sin. Rejoiceth in what? Truth. You know what truth is? Truth is accuracy. Truth is accurate. That's what you love. That's what you want is accuracy. Accurate, being right where it's supposed to be. Beareth all things. A support. Supports it. Believeth all things. Not suspicious. You know what's gone in our day? It's gone here amongst us. It's thinking the ill of anyone first. That, that should never happen. You should always be thinking of the best of someone until they open their mouth and prove otherwise. That's the great joke, by the way. You know how you keep people from understanding you're stupid? Keep your mouth shut. Because the moment you open it, you, you remove all doubt. Okay? But you know what? Sometimes we look at folks and we get a little suspicious. And we shouldn't be. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things. Boy, anticipation for the best for others. Endureth all things. Refuses to quit. 
See, but how do I get there? That's maturity. But look at what it does. Now, verse 13, we'll just drop down. And now abideth faith, hope, charity. These three, but the greatest of these is what? Charity. Charity is what holds it all together. Come over to Colossians 3. Charity, maturity, faith and hope and charity. The three marks of spiritual maturity. The three marks of here, I'm here and I can... You know what's so wonderful about the Word of God rightly divided? Is that you never have to doubt where you're at. It will help you understand that when Galatians 5 says the works of the flesh are these. And then he lists them for you. So if I'm doing any of those things in that list, what am I doing? Works of the flesh. Ain't that wonderful? I don't have to guess. I don't have to come on, is this what I'm doing? Nope, I'm doing it. I'm guilty. Let's fix her. Charity, this stuff's the same way. Hey, I can come in here and I can say, you know what? I am not behaving properly in my thinking process of others. And I can fix it. Colossians 3.14, 3.12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Here's the Christian dress. Here's how you're supposed to dress up in the mornings. You get up, you take a shower, you put your clothes on. Here it is. What am I? I'm the elect. I'm, I'm a member of the church, the body of Christ. I'm a member. Here it is. What am I to put on? Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Boy, what a bunch of one anotherings in there, man. Woo! Rub the cat the, fi- the fur the wrong way. Here it comes. But watch the next verse. And above all these things. Now, there's some great things in verse 12, 13, and 14. 12, 13 there. Wonderful things. But above all these, put on what? Charity. Which is the bond of perfect, perfectness. Perfection. That word perfect in Paul's epistles never means sinless or not doing anything wrong. 2 Timothy 3.17 says that the man of, verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, what? Reproof, correcting the bad behavior, correction, correcting the bad doctrine, instruction in righteousness. Paul says, in whatever state I am, I have learned, I have been instructed how to be content, how to be abound, how to abound, how to, I mean, I, every situation in life, the Word of God has instructed me. Why? Verse 17, that the man of God may be, what? Perfect, comma, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Boy, that mark of maturity. That's what the word perfect and Paul, mature. Charity is the bond that holds, it's the monkey glue. Stuck on you, baby. By the way, it's not rubber bands. I heard a guy one time, it's the rubber bands. You know what happens to rubber bands over time? They break. This don't break. This is that glue on the back of the wallpaper stuck to the drywall. That'll never come off. It's maturity. Now come back to, well, get over to Galatians 5. 
We'll watch it here. So when we talk here about charity, it's the end of the commandment. It's the goal. It's where we want to be. Charity, I'll be honest with you, charity and coming up, me coming up to you and saying, I love you, brother. How you doing? That ain't charity. Charity is looking out and saying, hey, how can I help you? How can I be a helper of your joy? What can I do for you? I'm being, being considerate of one another. Being in, now, I'll be honest with you. That's hard to do when the other person ain't receptive to it. And they bow their back. And they pitch their little pity parties. But you know what? That ain't on me. I'm going to do my job. That's on them. Galatians 5, wonderful passage here, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. No, that law system is a yoke of bondage around your neck. He says, man, you need to stand, you need to be, you need to be liberated from that. Verse 5, for we through the Spirit wait for the hope of, the, of righteousness by faith, for in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, now watch, but faith which, what, worketh by, what, love. It's a faith which worketh by, what is faith producing? Charity. Here he calls it love. Same principle, though. What's my, in, in the passage here, in the context, where's my faith resting? In the liberality of who I am in Christ. Not underneath that yoke system, but in who I am over here. And what is that going to tell me to do? Be thankful, have an inner harmony, and come over and submit yourselves one to another. And faith begins to work by. Now come back to 1 Timothy 1. We've got to hurt. We've got to hustle. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Your faith responding to, motivated by an understanding of who you are in Christ. That's what charity is all about. Thinking the way that God thinks about things and the way He esteems it. And how does He esteem you? You know that you're the inheritance of the Father? You belong to Him. You are valuable. You are wealthy. You are loved by the Godhead who will never let you down. We kind of tend to let people down, don't we? Tomorrow, isn't tomorrow Valentine's Day? I couldn't even tell you. Okay, You know where I'm at with Linda. I'm in trouble. Okay. I looked at her the other day. I said, what do you want for Valentine's Day? She said, sleep. I said, ah, baby, I'm with that. All right. You know, lock the dogs out is right. Go to sleep. You know, hey, it's pretty simple. I like it that way, <laughs> you know. But it's not that. What? A, hey, it's the. It's the way you think about. How does God? How does God esteem you? Well, He died for you. But then you read Ephesians one, and what has He done? He's blessed you with all spiritual blessings. He says, "I'm going to give you up front, spiritually, everything you need to be successful." The only thing you don't get up front is that new body, and that's because you're not in working in the heavenly places. You're stuck here on planet Earth. The only reason you need a new body is so that you can function in the heavenly places. When Israel goes into the kingdom, millennial kingdom, they're resurrected into an earthy body that will last forever. Their corruption is raised 
incorruptible. So your, the type of body you get is based upon where, who you belong to. If you're in the nation of Israel, not today, but in the future, you're going to get an earthly body that's never going to die. It's eternal. But you're not them. You're who? You're the body of Christ. We're going to the heavens. So we need a body that's going to function out there in outer space. I don't know how I got on that, but anyway. 1 Timothy 1. You've got to be thinking about how do I think? How, man, just it impacts you. Verse 5. Now the end of the commandment is charity. Out of, notice this, out of. That's really the key. Charity is to be a process. It is not an instant thing. That's brotherly love. That's Romans 12, let love be without dissimulation. I can have that instantly with you. You meet a new brother or sister in Christ, you instantly are in love with them because of who they are in Christ. But that ain't charity. That's just a warm, hey, I found another guy that believes the same as I do. And usually, what do you do? You grab on to him, don't you? <laughs> Nick knows that. He's, he's been around, you know. It's out of. It's a process. It comes from the production of godly edification in the life of, it becomes a life of the labor of love. It becomes a work of faith. It becomes a patience of hope. Those three marks of spiritual maturity. It comes out of a pure heart, a good conscience, and faith unfeigned. Three very specific things here. Paul could have said it come out of the cracker back box, cracker jack box. He didn't say that. They didn't have cracker jacks back then. Well, maybe they did. I don't know. Popcorn's been around a while, so I'm sure they did. Somebody, you know somebody figured out how to put caramel on it. You know that. <laughs> Three very specific things here that need to be a part of your life, need to be operating in your life, need to be there so that all of this works in unison and in time. A pure heart. Unmixed, sincere. Come over to Acts 15. Not, not false. Acts chapter 15. Your heart, folk, the, your heart, the mentality of your soul, your thinking, you, focused in on one thing. Acts 15, verse number 9. The apostle Paul says, or I'm sorry, Peter says here, and put no difference between us and them. The us is Israel, the little flock. Them is the Gentiles, Acts 15, 9. What I'm after is the end of that verse. Purifying their hearts by what? By faith. The way to have a pure heart, purified, comes from the cleansing power of God's grace comes from your faith resting in who you are in Christ. Go back to 1 Timothy 1. Again, Romans 10.10, 10, With the heart man believes unto righteousness. Right? Proverbs 4, I put it up there for you. Out of the heart comes the intents of life, the things of life. 
What's going on there? Your heart, that's critically important. All of life comes out of your heart. So what do you do? One, four. One, three. One, four. You take in the godly edification. You run through the process and you take sound doctrine and you put it into the filing cabinet of your thinking, of your heart, and it brings you to a point in your thought process, in your esteeming one another that says, you know what, I'm going to think this way. And I'm going to bring my life and my thinking in, the, in line with who I am in Christ. Paul tells the Corinthians, every thought comes into the captivity of Christ. I'm going to bring it all under the same mentality. Pure heart, you become focused on that one thing, who I am in Christ. Here it is. The love of Christ constraineth me. He says to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.14, constrain, motivates me, picks me up. Not my love for him, but his love for me. And the first thing to have is a single-minded heart, a singleness of thinking focused on who, who God has made you in Christ. Then he says a good conscience. Now, the good conscience is very interesting. Romans 2. Look, look, look over there at Romans 2. Because what does the conscience do to you, to your inner man, to your thinking? It accuses you or excuses you. It looks over there. The conscience is a component of your soul, of your inner man, Romans 2, verse 14. And it looks over there. It's a function just as your heart Pure heart is a function, it's a mentality of your soul. Your conscience comes in and says, you know what you're doing? Doesn't match the Word of God, so you're guilty, 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 guilty. And you know what you feel bad, don't you? Yeah. Get the puppy dog eyes and bow the hill, okay. Or it looks at it and says, you know what, what you're doing is right on. You're taking what's excellent in the mind and you're cleaning off and you're leaving the excellent. 2.14, for when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness in their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Come over to Acts 23. That's what the conscience does. Acts chapter 23. So the conscience comes along and it encourages you to move towards the right, the righteous, and to move away from the evil, the wrong. Move this way. Let's go be like 1 Corinthians 13 describes charity to be, and let's not be this over here. Let's don't bite and devour one another, but let's go and be who we are. Acts 23, verse 1, Paul says it this way, And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience, before God until this day. Isn't that interesting? What kind of conscience? A good conscience. Now, wait a second. Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, did he love the little flock or did he hate them? He hated them. Did he love the Lord? He hated the Lord as Saul of Tarsus. But yet, what does he say? I'm in good conscience. You know why? Because he thought when he hated and persecuted and did, he was doing what God wanted him to do. 
until what? Until Acts 9, Road to Damascus. Whoa. You know that when he said, who art thou? He's like, please don't say Lord. Don't say Jesus. And the Lord says, hey, I'm Jesus. Chapter 24, verse 16. Chapter 24, verse 16. Talking to Felix. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense towards God and toward men. What a definition of a good conscience. Void of offense toward who? Toward God and man. That means he's looking at his activity, he's looking at his behavior, and he's saying, you know what, come over to chapter 26, everything's good. Everything's good. Chapter 26, verse number 9, he stands before Agrippa. He says, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which things I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to the death, I gave my voice against them. That's Acts 8 when he's consenting unto the death. That's at the end of Acts 7, when they look over for Saul to give his thumbs up so they can stone Stephen. He goes, I gave my voice to it. And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even under the strange city. Boy, what a, look at his internal thinking process prior to his conversion. Go back to chapter 24. You know what kind of conscience he has there, by the way? He's got a defiled conscience. A defiled conscience is bad doctrine. He, Paul talks about having a weak conscience. A weak one, not enough information in there. To make decisions. A seared conscience. Seared their conscience with a hot iron. No light getting in. Dead. But a good conscience. Look at 24.16. And herein do I exercise myself. See that? Do I exercise? A good conscience has the godly edification of grace as its norms as its standards and a good conscience requires effort exercise in a disciplined fashion over a period of time to applying the truth of God's word to the details of life it isn't a quick thing it's a thing of taking in the information working it through and applying it to life and what your good conscience does, out of a pure heart, out of a good conscience, what it does is it says, you're on the right track, a little adjustment here, a little adjustment there, and it keeps you. But what, keep, what, is, what does the good conscience need? It needs the godly edification. Back to 1 Timothy 1. We'll be done here. Verse 5, last one. Of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. That's authentic. Authentic faith. Real faith. Not fake. You know, sometimes you see people fake it till they can make it. 
They dress right, smell right, taste right, sound right. And yet they're what? Dead man bones inside, hollow. Faith unfeigned, authentic. It's the real deal. It's faith that walks by love. It's that walk of faith. Folks, we walk by faith, not by sight. It's taking the Word of God and applying it to every detail of life. It's looking at the situation and saying, you know what? I choose to live in the manner that God's Word tells me I need to live as a single person, me individually, or as a wife, as a husband, as a parent, as a child, as an employee or employer, as a member of a local assembly. I'm going to be right where I need to be. You can't get to charity without those three. That's why Paul puts them there. If you think you can, you are faking it till you can make it. You have to have that good conscience working properly, which is going to be based on who you are in Christ. That issue there of a pure heart, that singleness of focus, that has to be evident in your life. And when you need reproving and correcting, that is what gives us the capability, the capacity to be reproved and corrected when we need it. How many of you like to be corrected and reproved? Good, no hands went up. We don't like it. It goes against our human nature. But man, when I'm walking where I'm at and where I need to be, and I'm operating at charity the end of the commandment is charity when i'm in that state of godliness then you know what i welcome the reproof and the correction online i out there in the ether i have three great correctors one attends church here constantly a correction constantly a and in the very beginning, I resented it. I'm like, you know, shut up. If you, don't, you study 20-something hours, work a 40-hour job. You come and do this. You think you can. I never said that to them. It's always a, an internal struggle, you know. And then one day I was studying this for me because I struggled with it. I was done. I'm like, dude, don't you say. I would see the email come or the text, and I'd delete it because I could see who it was coming from. Great correctors. And you know what? It wasn't their place to be a corrector. But then it dawned on me. You know what? Let's evaluate this the way Christ would evaluate it because he had great correctors, didn't he? He had great people who tried to fix him. And I came to the understanding that, you know what? So be it. And that's the way we'll just deal with it. Because what do I need? Maybe there's some truth in what they're saying. A lot of times there wasn't, by the way. You know why? Because I self-judged it. <laughs> Throw it away. No, because it's just what it is. The process. You're living that process of saying, you know what? No matter what comes, what am I going to do? I'm going to esteem them. I'm going to put into process this long doctrinal treatise 
of one anothering. And I'm going to take the attitude that I'm supposed to take. And I'm going to go live that process. And when that process takes place in the heart of me and in the heart of you, then that's what makes the local assembly strong. Because what tears it apart is a lack of charity. And I want to get it my way. So the end of the commandment, where we're headed, we start with esteem. Think, let's think like God thinks. And let's end in the God-likeness, looking at it. And there's a process there. Now, the process isn't designed to take 25 years. Paul doesn't teach it that way. The Word of God is quick. It's designed to work quickly. But the only way it's going to work quickly is if you what? Believe it and apply it. There's a simplicity in Christ. We make it difficult. But man, when we leave it in the simplicity of it, then it comes right there. We take the godly edification. We take the knowledge. It goes into our inner man. It begins to work through a pure heart. begins to work it through into a good conscience. And it begins to work into real faith. And you know what that produces? The end of the commandment, it produces charity. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the morning, Lord. We thank you for your word. And above all, Lord, we just thank you for who we are in your Son. We thank you that you've allowed us to participate in your great plan and your great wisdom for the heavenly places. And Lord, we thank you that you allowed us to live and to stay here and to learn and to grow and to be your ambassadors here and to put on display for all to see your wonderful grace and your character. And Lord, I just pray that it will work out in this, the end of the commandment is charity. For your honor and for your glory, in your name we pray, amen.